Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Matt Slick. We talked back in July 2021 about his book, Apologetics and Atheism, Exposing the Weakness of Atheism. And he's come back today to talk about another book that he published in 2020. Its title is Christian Defense Manual. And he runs a very thoroughly researched site with tons of information titled CARM.org. So C-A-R-M. Dot org, which is an acronym for Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. There's tons of research on there, and he's still writing things uh, on current topics as well. His other books are Examining Islam, published 2016, Notes on Calvinism, 2017. I think he said he was a Calvinist in his sensibilities. Last time we talked, also, there's another one, Right Answers for Wrong Beliefs, going back to 2002. He's also written a couple of fiction books, Time Trap, the influence and also atheistica an atheist nation published 2020 he uh, has a radio show that you can listen to live titled matt slick live weekdays 3 to 4 p.m pacific and i think he just said also today he's going to do uh, a show on clubhouse.com so i'll put that stuff in the show notes if people are interested so matt slick welcome back to the show thanks for agreeing to the interview Hey, well, thanks for having me back. I'm surprised you did. <laughs> I don't mind. I don't mind. Conflict or what? I mean, we don't have to agree on everything. For people who may not have heard our last interview, can you kind of talk about your background? You've done tons of research, uh, you know, on Christian subjects, among other things. Can you kind of talk about what you've researched and kind of current stuff maybe that we didn't cover uh, in our show six months ago? that you've done within the last Wow. Season. Well, there's a lot. I mean, uh, I, I uh, like to study everything. And um, in fact, my wife goes to bed before I do. I stay up and I often will research things on quantum physics on, on the web. Um, like lately, I've been researching uh, evolution and why numbers relate and correspond to actuality. And what's the bridge between them? Because I think that it lays a foundation for transcendentals and can be uh, solved through the Trinitarian essence. So, and I work at all kinds of things that are rather esoteric, <clears throat> but uh, I enjoy learning. And I, uh, even at my age, I just turned 65. So I still enjoy learning and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I, I'm an ordained minister and uh, a graduate of Westminster Theological Seminary, where I got my Master's of Divinity. It was a pastor, and now I run CARM.org full-time, and it's had, let's see, 148 million visitors. It's 26 years old. I've written uh, 5,000 articles, and I love to answer questions as well as uh, be irritating, my wife says. I'm quite good at that. That's my spiritual gift, apparently, so I told her I had to perfect it. And uh, she just rubs her forehead a lot around me. So that's about it. Great. And so what led you to write this book, Christian Defense Manual? I mean, you kind of listed out of varying, always people who are questioning the faith, like you have kind of chapters laid out. Can you kind of talk about your approach in the book? Yeah, the reason I wrote it is, uh, now I got to be careful how I say this, because I don't mean this to be derogatory to Christians as a whole, but I've discovered that most Christians don't know what the Bible teaches. They don't understand the basics of biblical theology. So uh, I'm getting over a head cold. So I keep muting myself to clear my throat. So doing it in and out. Um, so when I've done seminars, for example, and I'll ask people questions, I'll say, how many believe in the Trinity? You know, their hands will go up and I'll say, good. If you raise your hand up on this next question, I'm going to call on you. How many could explain what the Trinity is? 
and no hands go up. How many believe Jesus Christ is God in flesh? Raise your hand. The hands go up. And I'll say, I'm going to ask, if you raise your hand, I'll call on you. How many believe that, that uh, or can you show me that from Scripture? Maybe two out of 100 hands might go up. And this is uh, how it goes. Now, I understand people get intimidated, but most people can't tell the difference between justification and sanctification. How many natures does Jesus have? Why is that important? Is this physical resurrection important? What's covenant? Uh, what's the Trinity? How does it relate to marriage? How does it relate to us? And these may sound complicated, but they are not. And I've gone to different churches over the years, and I've discovered that uh, a lot of pastors just teach fluff. They don't teach serious theological stuff from the pulpit. Now, I'm not saying you have to have a seminary degree and teach, uh, you know, uh, graduate level stuff in the pulpit. But what I'll do when I preach, I guess preach, is I will insert a, just a snippet, one minute, maybe two at the most, depending on the sermon, uh, of doctrine. <clears throat> and I've discovered over the years that people love that. And uh, they, they say, we, we are starving for this. And pastors don't want to apparently ground the Christians in the faith because their job, according to Ephesians 4, uh, 10, 11, is, uh, 12, 11, 12, is to equip the Christians for the work of ministry. And they're not doing that. And so when I, I, one of the reasons I wrote this uh, or put this together, actually, I should say, is this uh, the book, The Christian Defense Manual was to help solve that problem. I wanted Christians to know what the basics of the Christian faith were. And then that foundation is laid so that then they could do other things, tackle atheism, evolution, abortion, Islam. So you have to know the basics first. Most Christians don't. And I love teaching the basics to, to them because for me, it's a lot of fun. Well, because oh, some of those basics get lost. Like I still have, I mean, I've talked to a lot of Christians in different faiths or different, uh, sex or or and they're still are we're still arguing about the trinity we're still arguing like hasn't that been resolved like is it a catholic view where they're all one being are they separate what what's your position on the trinity well i can tell you the biblical position of the trinity Perfect. um and it is that there's one eternal being and, and you can find that in isaiah chapter 43 44 and 45 no beings created before him or after him he does not change malachi 3 6 he's eternal uh, psalm 90 verse 2. well he reveals himself as one excuse me as three distinct simultaneous persons personhood theologically means self-awareness awareness of others can say you and yours and me and mine has a will and things like that and the father has a will and the son has a will the holy spirit has a will the Father sent the Son, and the Son is the only one who became incarnate, and the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit, and they speak, and they each have wills. And so there's only one divine being, so we say God is one divine being in three distinct persons. People say, well, I don't understand that, so it can't be true. You don't want to make the mistake of saying if you can't understand something, it's not true. You want to be able to say if it's contradictory to logic, it can't be true. That's correct. The Trinity is not contradictory to logic. It just says there's one thing in three persons, one being in three persons. In fact, tonight I'll be teaching on the Trinity for about an hour to an hour and a half in depth. And I'm going to be going through all kinds of stuff. I've got a document I've been working on for months and months and months off and on on what the Trinity is. But nevertheless, <clears throat> so the, uh, the Trinity, I say to people, think of this. Think of time. Time is one thing. It's time but it has three aspects, past, present, and future. 
The past is not the same thing as the present, because if it was, the past would be right now, but it's not. And the future is not the same thing as the present, because if it was, then we'd be in the future, but we're not, we're in the present. So they have a distinction between them, but they all share the same essence. And so this is only by analogy, but time is one thing with three, I don't like to use the word parts because that's not good theologically, but in this instance, I'll use it just as a building block, three parts or three aspects. God is like that one being with three aspects or what we call three persons. And furthermore, in Genesis, excuse me, in Romans 1.20, it says, <clears throat> excuse me, that God is the visible attributes are made known in creation. Well, creation consists of three main things, space, time, and matter. Space is height, width, depth. Matter is solid, liquid, gas. Time is past, present, and future. So we live in a trinity of trinities. The very nature of, of existence itself reflects the very character and nature of God, and we exist inside of that. And so God's Trinitarian essence is revealed in Scripture, it's going to be revealed in creation, but it's more completely revealed in Scripture, and we derive it from there. And, and I can teach on it for quite a bit, but I want to get too deep for you guys. Well, I'm just warming you up for later tonight. But, I mean, Christ is praying to the Father. They say he's going to the right hand of the Father. Right. So it seems like in the in a biblical, rooted biblical sense, he's a different personality than the Father. He's separate. Would you agree with that? Yes, except I would not use the word personality. What I teach people is use the word person, person. because person has a theological meaning to it. A lot of people don't know that. And you wouldn't think that until I tell them, no, it has a theological significance. They go, you do? What do you mean? So the Latin word for, uh, for mask that actors would use was persona. So the actors, one actor might have three or four parts he would play. This is, I forgot what centuries this was in, but it was a long time ago, you know, four or five, six hundreds, whatever it was. And uh, <clears throat> they'd be on a stage acting and they would take a stick, we had a little mask on it, and they would put the mask over and they would speak. And you knew that was the character he was doing now. And they put it down and put it up and do another character that was called a persona. The theologians borrowed that and it attributed to, to uh, the the nature of the God has are really trying to theologically work out the differences in the particulars because a, a person, a persona, he might argue with the other persona as, as the play would go on. And so, and so you could have these two persona. They borrowed that and said, well, we see the father speaking to the son and the son speaking to the father we would see like for example in luke 22 42 jesus says not my will but your will be done so he has a separate will from the father and this gets more complicated with the nature of christ but won't get into that and the holy spirit has a will and i believe that's in romans chapter 8 and so he has a will and the holy spirit speaks so what they would just do they said oh well each one's called god and each one has persona self-awareness awareness of others could speak but there's no there's only one god so let's just put it together and they said it's a trinity one god three persons it's perfectly logical gotcha so i mean so that's the trinity in our in your understanding and should be biblically rooted i mean what do you kind of see so if the trinity kind of a, a different persona or something then christ the son comes into the world to 
achieve God's purposes, right? Or, or the Father's purpose, right? Yeah, before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4. Theology is always integrated with other parts. So let me back up. So in the Trinity, they have the Trinity is one substance called divine simplicity that's existed forever. Psalm 90, verse 2, Malachi 3, 6. And in their intertrinitarian communion, they made the eternal covenant, Hebrews 13, 20. And in the eternal covenant, the Father would elect or choose certain people to give to the Son to redeem. That's Ephesians 1, 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's what it says, Ephesians 1, 4. So what we see is the Father choosing and giving the, the chosen ones to the Son. And the Son is to redeem them. Now, Ephesians, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says that he chose us uh, for salvation. That's, I'm just quoting the verses. What I'll often do when I'm teaching this stuff is I'll just quote scriptures, and people will disagree. They don't know I'm quoting them. And I'll say things like, well, I believe that God chooses us from, from the beginning for salvation. No, I disagree. And they don't realize I'm literally quoting word for word. I do this a lot with people and try and get them to believe scripture. Christians who argue because usually the Christians, a typical Christian is following the blonde haired, blue eyed Caucasian surfer dude dressed in a woman's nightgown, dressed, standing at the door of your heart, asking permission for you to let him in. And that's not the Jesus of scripture. So anyway, <clears throat> we see that the, I forgot what the original question was, but we see that the Trinitarian communion uh, is at work eternally and is manifested to us in time in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So the Son would have a different will than the Father, but there's a that gets more complicated because <laughs> because there's what's called there's two doctrines. One's called the communicatio idiomatum, and one's called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union says that in the one person are two distinct natures: the divine nature and the human nature. Well, the divine nature and the human nature each have attributes. The divine nature is everywhere all the time, knows all things. The human nature gets thirsty and hungry and has to sleep. Well, the attributes of both natures are ascribed to the one person. It's called the communication of the properties or communicati widomatum. <clears throat> Jesus says, I am thirsty. Jesus says, I'll be with you always to the day of the earth. So the same person, I, claim the attributes of both natures. Then he has will. In that, and made under the law, Galatians 4, 4, for a little while, Lord, than the angels, Hebrews 2, 9. And so he would have a manifestation of humanity that was there because he was incarnate, and he didn't want to go through the crucifixion. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So we see a distinction. And I can get more complicated. I, I can get deeper into <clears throat> that, but I won't for now. But there's the but, I mean, I think that I think it's within the Trinity, the context of the Trinity of Christ coming into the world, right? So all Judeus, Jewish history up until that time is looking for the Messiah. Jews today are still looking for the Messiah, uh, yeah. too. I talked to some of them. I'm like, ooh. Uh, but so even Moses says one will come after me, right? So there's something very potent that differentiates right. Christ from the prophets or the Messiah from the prophets and Moses and all that. Yeah, that's right. And then that's the Trinitarian aspect of it, which Moses... But I think a lot of people kind of spit, miss, miss a lot of that. But maybe we can also just kind of move down the book. I mean, why do we need to have this aspect of the Trinity for human beings to be redeemed? 
maybe that, that wow that's a really good question seriously i'm not just saying it that is one of the best questions to to ask why is it the trinity must exist in order for us to be redeemed depending on how deep you want me to get onto this i could just teach on the trinity for an hour but there's the issue called the one and the many and then there's the issue of personhood if god is one person how can he manifest the fullness of personhood by himself for forever no reciprocity no fellowship no love there's problems there won't get into all of that in the trinitarian essence though <clears throat> you can have something that's really interesting you can have offense or the one being offended so i have an analogy i use i'll, I'll get into that you know i say my wife and i we come over to your house okay and at your house we're talking and stuff and i turn and i i knock one a, a lamp over i break your lamp and you love that lamp, but you're a good guy. And you say, no, it's just an analogy. And you say, hey, Matt, uh, no problem. Uh, I forgive you for breaking the lamp, but pay me $10 for it. Now, the question is, is that true forgiveness? What would you say? Uh, I would say maybe not true forgiveness. I think it good. was just something. Right, because you're requiring a payment from that which is forgiven. Technically, if it's forgiven, it's not there anymore. So you can't be consistent and require payment for something that is gone. That's the idea. So my wife is there, and you said my wife's name is Anique. She speaks French. Her mom was born and raised in France. It means little Anne. So her name's Anique Slick. How about that for a name? So, <clears throat> and we call her Anique. So uh, you say, hey, you know, Anique, um, Matt broke my lamp. I forgive him. You pay me $10 for it. Now, is that true forgiveness? No. No, it's not. No. You're transferring the debt to somebody else. That's what the cults do. All right, so in true forgiveness, now, in real life, I'm going to pay for the lamb. Hey, I'm sorry, man. You know, okay, but this is an analogy to teach something. So in true forgiveness, who's left to pay for the replacement of the lamp? Uh, I don't know. Who? You. Because you've forgiven me, no payment can be required of me. You can't require it of somebody else. So technically, you're the last one left to make that payment because the offense was against you. And you forgave. And you paid. If you transfer it to somebody else, it's not true forgiveness. So that's what the cults do. And because to them, Jesus is a created thing. So what we have here is an instance of the nature of God being the one, we could take the analogy and say, when we sin, we sin against God. We break his law. Well, he's going to forgive us. But if he ignores his own law the way Muslims, uh, the God of Islam does, in Islam, Allah has to ignore his own law and say, eh, you're forgiven. Because the law requires a punishment because that's what law is. If there's no punishment attached to a law, it's a slogan. That's a fortune cookie. But if it's a law, it's a punishment. So wait a minute. In Islam, Allah just says, oh, you're forgiven. Well, where's the necessary punishment that goes with the law? Because that's the nature of law. Well, there isn't one. So he breaks his own law to forgive. This is why Islam is incoherent. And the God of Islam can't be true. It's one of the many reasons, but nevertheless. So in Christianity, God becomes one of us. He's the one against whom we have sinned. He becomes one of us, and he is the one who then makes the payment. 
And so this is why God has to be the one who does this. And it's furthermore why Jesus has to be the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament, added human nature, added, and it's called hypostasis uh, in the under of the personhood. And he became one of us. He has two natures, God and man. Now, here's a question. If he's God in flesh, which nature died on the cross? Only the human nature. Right, human nature. <clears throat> How then is a sacrifice of divine value? If only the human nature died, how's a sacrifice of divine value? And the answer is found in the impressive phrase communicatio idiomatum. So, guys, if you're dating your ladies, make sure they're Christian, uh, use the phrase communicatio idiomatum in casual conversation. She'll be impressed and she'll want to date you some more. So, use that phrase, it's really good. And course you gotta know what it means when she says what does it mean oh i don't know i just heard a guy named slick say it it's not going to go well for you the communication of the property says that the two natures have attributes or properties but they're they are ascribed to the single person like i said earlier so jesus says i'm thirsty i'm hungry jesus says i'll be with you always even into the earth so he's claiming the attributes of both persons now, furthermore we perceive the divine through the human we would see the human man walk on water as divinity we see the human man say rise from your bed you know to the dead and, and you know at lazarus come forth we see the human man say to the storm be still and it obeyed so we perceive the divine through the human jesus is the human on the cross the divine attributes are for the person the person died on the cross therefore the sacrifices of divine value Interesting. see right. so it makes simple right like it all it all came together like Nobody expected that. It didn't seem like that. It was something between uh, God and like creation. Like I don't, I don't know. If, I mean, I guess he said I had to be raised up, right? Just kind of like uh, uh, Moses raising the serpent up on the stick. But I don't think right. they saw the death and resurrection. That's really the key element yeah. of the Christian faith, right? Is the resurrection, not just the death, but right. also the resurrection. Yeah, the resurrection is one of the proofs. Because in Psalm 16.10, there's a prophecy that God would not let his Holy One undergo decay. And Jesus performed the action of his own resurrection in John 2, 19 through 20. He says, destroy this temple three days, I will raise. It's a gero in the, in the Greek. It's future active indicative, meaning he's doing the action of the resurrection. But the Father raised him also. And the Holy Spirit was involved in the resurrection also. Inter-Trinitarian actions participated through the three persons. And so without the resurrection... <clears throat> We are lost without, now I'll show you something. A lot of people don't know about, it's called covenant. People don't study covenant, but they need to study covenant because the word in Latin for covenant is testamentum, oh, Old Testament, New Testament. God works covenantally because a covenant is an agreement. The 10 commandments are, are covenant documents, 10 and 10, not four and six, 10 and 10. And they're both put in the Ark of the Covenant one copies for God, one copies for man, signifying the Ten Commandments. I could go into that, well, how they are. It's called the suzerain vassal treaty pattern of the third millennium BC, that they meet that pattern. But covenant means that there's rewards, contracts, stipulations, and things like that. The covenant of the Father and the Son is that the Father would raise the Son. In the sacrifice to redeem the elect, he would raise the Son, and by so doing, he's fulfilling the covenant requirement. And therefore, uh, the resurrection is essential to the Christian faith. Right. I mean, that's, so he's the first fruits of the resurrection, right? Is Christ 
that right. So in the time that we were discussing, you were discussing, then the dead come. And I think your position it was more Calvinist, this kind of elect that maybe you don't hear in other variants of Protestantism is the selection or chosenness. And then right. some people just aren't chosen by God, right? Right. They're not chosen to be saved. And um, now I am a Calvinist and I can defend it very well. I've been defending it for like 30 years. Uh, but uh, election means to choose. And the Bible says God chose us in him. In him is a phrase of federal headship where the male represents a descendants, not the female. The male is in authority of representation, not the female. Adam and Eve were in the garden. She ate the fruit first. So she sinned first. She then gave the fruit to Adam and then he sinned. He sinned second. But sin entered the world through one man, Romans 5.12, because he was the representative. He was the federal head. And so it says in 1 Corinthians 15.22, in Adam, federal head, all die. In Christ, federal headship, all should be made alive. So he is the representative. Christ represents us. I could get into that for another 20 minutes, but don't have time. <clears throat> so he's, our rep he's the one who is represented us, which is why it says in John, excuse me, in Romans 6, 6, that we were crucified with Christ. And Romans 6, 8, we died with Christ. Well, we were crucified with Christ, but he was crucified 2,000 years ago. How's that possible? If he represented us on the cross, the representation is of the elect, the ones given by the Father to the Son. Now think about it. If God knows all things from eternity, which he does, then he knows who's going to be saved, but he's, he's not going to be saved. He doesn't know it because he knows what their free will choices are going to be because those free will choices can't exist unless God is the one behind all of it. This gets to what's called ultimate proximate and efficient causation, another topic. And so he's one arranges. Nothing can come into existence without his permission. This is God. Ephesians 1.11 says he works all things after the counsel of his will. All things, the death of my son, my wife's um, uh, rare uh, genetic problem she has called Louise Dietz. I'm autistic. I have Asperger's. Uh, so all things work together for good to those who love God, you know, Romans 8, 28. But he ordains all that comes to pass. The ordination could be by direct causation or by indirect permission. But all of those work under his, his, his will. He's not surprised by anything. And so our will has to work underneath the sovereign will of God. We're still free, but he doesn't just know what we're going to do and then reacts. That's a heresy, and it's, it's growing in the church. A lot of heresy is growing in the church, man-centeredness and humanism, which is another topic I can talk about. For, right. so well, many we things. can get to that. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. Sorry. I can really keep going about this. I love doing seminars where I just say, let me just go for an hour. I'll teach you stuff. Right. I mean, but there's a lot there. There's a lot of things that we just kind of go to church, but some of the deeper background meaning, some of the theological gravity is lost, I think, and maybe I speak yeah. for myself, but I think that it's very important to get that kind of rooted foundation. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you kind of do talk about kind of the eschatology. We're 2,000 years from the Lord, presence yeah. on the earth, from the Testament, the New, new Covenant, right? Um, where do you kind of see where we're at and, and, and how time is supposed to unravel? It sure seems like things are falling apart to me. Well, they are falling apart. Uh, yeah, my eschatological view is called amillennialism. 
And I believe we're in the millennial reign of Christ now, because if you go to Revelation 20, the, where it says a thousand years, a thousand years is used in the middle of a figurative context. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. A day is but a thousand years. This, the word thousand is like our word kabillion. It means a lot. It doesn't necessarily mean a literal 1,000. And I can go through and show you where Satan is bound in Matthew 12, 22, 32, while Jesus was still there. And <clears throat> now there's different views and stuff like that. But here's something a lot of people don't know about. As it was in days of Noah, so shall it be the days of the coming of the Son of Man. For they were eating, they were drinking, they were giving in marriage. Till the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came in, took them all away. That's Matthew 24. That people call that the rapture. It's not the rapture. They were taken. And two men in the field, one will be taken, one is left. That's a rapture. It's not. The parallel of Luke 17 says two men in the field, but it's the wicked who were taken. Because it says the flood came in, instead of taking them away, the flood came and destroyed them all. So the context is the wicked who are taken, and they ask Jesus, where are they taken? And he tells us, where the body is, the vultures gather. That's what he says at the end of Luke 17. When you go to Matthew 13, <clears throat> excuse me, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And the wheat are the good, the elect. The tares are the bad, the non-elect. And they said, should we tear up the wheat? I mean, tear up the tares? He says, no. Tear up, uh, says, uh, tear up the, which is first, no, says first, allow them both to go together. I'll say to the reapers, uh, first gather the tares. The first ones gathered are the wicked, not the good. Matthew 13, 30 specifically is where Jesus says that specific thing. I've shown people this over the years and they just stare at it. And they go, how come I've never been taught this before? That's another topic. Then later, 10 verses later, he interprets it and he says that it's at the end of the age that he'll take the wicked out of his kingdom. So we're in the kingdom now. The first one's taken out of the wicked and the Christians are taken later. That's the, the, the eschatology of Jesus. Now, why am I bringing that up? Because in this, things are supposed to get worse. Now, my opinion is that when, Jesus, when God spoke to Adam and said, if you eat the fruit, you're going to die, because Adam represented all mankind, Romans 5, 18, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Therefore, I, I suspect that God was not only talking to Adam, but also to all people in Adam. If you go to Matthew 24, I think it's verse 12, I think it's what it is. It's been a long time. Actually, it's not been a long time. I just have trouble memorizing some verses. And Matthew 24, I think it's verse 12. Let's see if I'm right. No, that's lawless. It'll go cold. I think it's 22. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. Wait a minute. So Jesus is saying, and he talked about the tribulation coming. He says, if those days be not cut short, no flesh is going to live. Sarks, flesh. So I wonder if history is a gigantic, I told you so, from God. You eat this fruit, you're going to die. Wages of sin is death. If those days be not cut short, no flesh will be left. Could it be, <clears throat> excuse me, could it be that, that Jesus is going to return right before mankind destroys itself physically? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it, right? <clears throat> yeah. And so then what he'll do is he'll take the <clears throat> wicked away and judge them. And we're going to be raptured and the new heavens, new earth. That's my view. And I'm the only one I know who holds that uh, totality view. That's not a good sign. Uh, but I do know, as I've been te teaching this to people, 
they're more and more coming along going, you know, that makes sense. It's right there. So I need to write a, a long article on this and go through it. I, I hold to that position. And that's a whole nother lifetimes of, of dispute within Christian churches with a rafter. Are you a premillennial, a millennial? I mean, people have spent mm -hmm. so much uh, time on yep. that. <clears throat> oh, yeah. I, th yeah. yeah. I could teach on all mill. I, I've got a study I, I've taught uh, maybe 10, 15 times. And every single time I've taught it, uh, people have come away saying, uh, I have no idea how to respond to that. It's it's really solid. Well, people but have anyway. made careers and lives off of the rapture, right? These Tim LaHaye yeah. and all these other characters have, have promoted this. What was the guy's name from uh, the 19th century in England? He was a dispute. Darby? Uh, yeah, Darby. John Nelson Darby. Yeah. So. Yeah. <clears throat> yep, 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 yep. So I call it depreschatology. That's what I call it. Right. Depreschatology. Uh, true, but I mean, the other thing also is like, Sometimes you get you can get lost in those kind of eschatological things, and you're detached from kind of day to day stuff happening now. So, right, I don't know, especially if it's not correct. I mean, if the rapture. Is That's right. That's right. Um, do you mind taking a few questions, Matt? I got a couple from the audience. Please. I got one. Can you discuss 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 catechisms too, please? I, catechism is kind of like a standard doctrine. Or something. Maybe you could expand on that. Yeah, uh, catechisms are great uh, if it's a good one. And uh, I like the Westminster Catechism. I don't go with the Lutheran view because it's I, there's some issues there. Uh, Roman Catholicism is apostate. It's a false church. Don't have anything to do with that. Same with Eastern Orthodoxy. But there are good catechisms. Now I'm a Presbyterian, and yet so I don't really hold to a lot. What's or some of what's in the 1689. Uh, uh, London Confession, Baptist Confession, which is a very good confession. It's very good. It really is. There's minor differences, and that's okay. But but catechisms can be very useful. Here's the thing, though. Don't just believe them because they teach it. Check out what they say against Scripture. That's what I always say. And since my last name is Slick, I'll say, hey, don't trust a guy named Slick. Read the word for yourself and examine it. But catechisms generally are very well put together, very useful. And, and so in fact, on CARM, I have a statement of faith, which is like a super short catechism, but it's a long statement of faith. Uh, and you can go check it out. But uh, yeah, you know, there's a lot of good stuff there. Right. I mean, what's the original catechism that they repeat in the Catholic Church, which is the, uh, it's not the Geneva, there's the Genevan one, but I, I think it's, no, in the Catholic Church, there's a catechism yeah. in the Catholic Church. is a Baltimore catechism. Okay. And uh, the, let me just tell you, Roman Catholicism is not Christian. It is not Christian. It's Antichrist. When I say that, it's not because I was a Catholic and I got uh, mistreated and I'm angry. Nope, it's theological. When I teach people what Catholicism actually says from its original documents, they're like, what? Are you kidding me? Well, that's right. It's what it says. It's bad news. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking through catechisms right now. I'm trying to remember something, but I, I can't remember what it is. But yeah, I mean, you repeat catechisms in different uh, Protestant sects and things like that. So it does. I mean, people are still there. Are uh, another question is Oswald asked: Does Matt think Christianity is more in danger from the other Abrahamics or from pagan secularism? Yes. 
That's true. Or, or, which is it? Uh, so Islam is an Abrahamic, so to speak, religion that is full of evil. And it teaches in Surah 9, which is the second to the last Surah. There's no abrogation after it. Uh, and in Surah 9, verse 5 and 29, uh, teach killing Christians and killing people, going out after them. And so people don't know that, but Islam is a religion of violence. The Bible prophesies about Christians being beheaded. So it, it's, some say it's probably Islam. As the Antichrist comes in and things happen, and we get over, get over stuff. All right. Muhammad was very violent. I mean, he was involved yes. in mass beheadings of uh, Jews yep. at that time, right? The yeah. Quraysh, I think. Yeah, he was an evil man. He was an evil man. And uh, But here's the thing is, I can show you this. Secularism is alive and well in the Christian church. Humanism, in the form of humanism. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to set, you'll be careful how you answer, <clears throat> but I'll show you how humanism is in the Christian church. I'm going to give a definition of free will and tell me if you agree with it. I'm setting, you guys can say, well, I'm not going to answer because I'm afraid. <laughs> that's, that's okay. But I'm going to show you how humanism is alive in the Christian church. Okay. So here's the definition of free will. Is free will this? That you have a choice between good and bad. No one's forcing you to make a choice. It's of your own will, not being forced. You can do either good or bad, and you choose one. And that's what free will is. The ability to without being forced to make a, a decision according to what you desire between two options and, and you can do either one and you, and uh, you choose one or the other. Is that what free will is? I don't think so. I don't think it's simple in binary terms, like either good or bad. So I would say no. You say no. Okay. Cause you say it's not binary. Now people are, 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 are going to be saying, well, I don't know. I, Cause Matt, you know, said he's tricking us. So, <laughs> well, here's the thing. The reason it's a bad definition is it doesn't apply to God. God can't choose between good and evil and accomplish either one. He can only choose that which is good. And yet he has free will. So, what, so free will is the ability to make an unforced choice consistent with your nature. That's what free will is because then it's based upon God's essence, not man's. Humanism is using the, the person mankind as the measure of what's good and bad christians so easily and naturally fault or default to that position i did too until i learned and they default to the position of judging free will by what i experience what i know what i feel ultimately that's idolatry and this is alive and well in the christian church and one of the ways it manifests is well i feel as though this is how the church should be I believe and I see that this should work. And it leads to false doctrines. It leads to false things like um, women pastors and elders. Or what does the Bible mean to you? That's, what do you mean? What does it mean to you? You know, it can mean, if it means to, that's not what truth is, it's not subject to my preferences and my desires. So there is, <clears throat> there's a lot in the Christian church. And then they say, well, I don't, really understand the trinity so i'm not going to worry about it and so it's okay to not believe in the trinity 
Whoa, 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 whoa. So what they're doing is they're saying, I can't figure, I can't understand, I can't, I can't, I, I. That's humanism. It's alive and well in the Christian church. Right. Right. That humanistic view, no doubt. Um, the other question from Oswald is, do you see any similarities between Calvinist predestination and Jewish-ish chosenness? I don't understand what is meant by Jewish chosenness. Do you mean from their well, own perspective yeah, or from their perspective? Because I don't know what their own perspective is other than to say that they were chosen by God as a nation. See, because a covenant is a pact or an agreement between two or more parties. And Jesus says in Matthew 15, 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus was not sent to the world. He was only sent to Israel. It's a covenant reason. And because Israel broke the covenant, we the Gentiles are grafted in. That's how that works. So if they mean Jew Jewish chosenness in that sense, well then Jewish chosenness in that sense is corporate election, election of a group, which is covenantal. And individual predestination is deals with election, which isn't just Calvinistic. It's scripture. Ephesians uh, 1 4. Uh, I can go to uh, Matthew 24 and talk about it. I can go to uh, Romans 8 and 9 and talk about it. This is what it is. And most Christians don't like it. And there's a reason they don't like it. It's because humanism's alive and well. They don't like it because they want everything to be because of their choice, their wisdom, their ability. God would never do. XYZ. And I say to them, well, because they'll say, well, you know, 2 Peter 3 9, God wants everyone to be saved. You know, He wants all to be saved. Well, we could talk about that. What's the all mean? They go, you're, you're being ridiculous. No, I'm not. And I ask them, I say, if God wants all to be saved and you think the word all means every individual, then why does Jesus speak in parables? Because Mark 4 10 through 12, he speaks in parables so they'll not be saved specifically so now we go oh wait a minute so what's going on then you have to study how all is related to things and i've done the studies over the years so you see this this is a great question it really is there's similarities and there's differences and working the similarities and differences is a theological um journey which is really rewarding and you kind of also talk about cults and different some ostensibly or people to say they're christians uh but you're a critic of jehovah's witnesses mormonism yeah. you've talked about roman catholicism do you mind kind of maybe addressing a few of those other kind of so-called christian offshoots maybe as, as how they're sure well jehovah's witnesses teaches that there's no trinity jesus is not god but he's a created thing as an angel who stopped becoming an angel or stopped being an angel became a man that's a problem of continuity there he died on the torture stake not a cross not for our sins but to reopen the door that adam closed and then he did not rise from the dead physically and then he became michael the archangel again so there is no human up there in heaven, which means there is no high priest. That's another topic. That's why Jesus was baptized. It's until he entered into the priesthood. And so there, and they require um, works but for didn't salvation. Didn't you tell me, sorry to interrupt, but didn't you tell me last time that his baptism was consistent with the Melchizedek order? Or was that somebody else? Yes, uh, it was me. Uh, he was baptized to fulfill 
all righteousness, Matthew 3.15. Fulfill means Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 8, Numbers chapter 4, Exodus 29. In order to enter into the priesthood, you had to be 30 years of age. Jesus was 30. A verbal blessing, did, my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. Anointed with oil, Holy Spirit, is his anointing that came upon him. And had to be sprinkled with water. Sorry, folks, but that's what it says in Numbers 8, 7. The uh, priest is anointed with the element is applied to the person, not immersed in it. Uh, sorry, that's what it is. And uh, in that context of so Jesus, most probably according to Levitical law or, or Old Testament law was uh, sprinkled. And there's, I go into baptism and sprinkling and immersion and, and the interrelationship also. So that's what, what that is. And, uh, I lost my train of thought. Sorry, well, we were talking okay. about the different other religions. You, I'm oh, sorry, yeah. you were talking about Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. Maybe you can talk about Mormons. I know you're kind sure. of up in Mormon territory. So, so Mormonism teaches that God used to be a man on another planet, and he became a god uh, by following the laws and ordinances of that god on that planet. He brought one of his wives with him, exalted her to goddesshood, and so he has a body of flesh and bones. He's about six feet tall in heaven, and she has a body of flesh and bones, and they get together, and they, and they make spirit babies because they're physical. And so the spirit babies uh, in the pre-existence, you, me, the devil, Jesus, were all brothers and sisters for the pre-existence. And uh, <clears throat> anyway, I'll skip some details, but... Uh, you have to become born here on earth, become a good Mormon. And if you keep celestial law, you have the potential of becoming a God of your own planet and starting the process over. That skips a lot of stuff because there's a lot of stuff in there. But uh, that's the basics of Mormonism. Now, Roman Catholicism teaches the proper doctrine of the Trinity, the proper doctrine of who Christ is, the proper doctrine of the resurrection. But as it says in paragraph 2068 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, that you obtain salvation through faith baptism, and the observance of the commandments. In paragraph 2036, I think it is, it says that uh, the, the keeping of the, the natural law is necessary for salvation. In paragraph 2070, it says the natural law is expressed in the Ten Commandments. Ergo, you have to keep the Ten Commandments to be saved. But the Bible says in Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And Romans 4.5 says, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So the Roman Catholic Church, and there's more, I'm just giving you the base, very basics. The Roman Catholic Church preaches a false gospel. And in, in in the Council of Trent on Justification, Canon 9, for example, and others, it actually curses the idea of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So it is an antichrist religion. And I haven't even gotten into the stuff it does with Mary. It's antichrist. Well, there's a lot of stuff that really isn't in the Bible. They put a lot of things in there. They have a real fixation on graven images too, which yep. very yep. not Old Testament. You, know. you got that um, right. I got another question from me from Leslie. She asks, is the guest of the opinion that God created everything, including evil? Okay, good question. God created everything, and when he created it, it was good. So when Satan was, was uh, when Lucifer was created, he was not evil. But in his own freedom of his will, he chose to rebel against God, and he's the one who brought evil into existence. Did God know this would happen? Yes. Did God ordain that it would happen? Yes. Did he cause it? No. So I'll introduce now really quickly what's called ultimate, proximate, and efficient causation. So the ultimate cause of Adam and Eve being in the garden 
and the serpent being there. The ultimate cause is God, because God created the universe, solar system, planet, continent, garden, put Adam and Eve there. He's the ultimate cause. Now, he's the proximate cause of that fall because he put Adam and Eve there and he allowed the serpent to come in. He could have stopped the serpent from coming in, but he just let him come in. The serpent came in on his own. God didn't force him. God didn't make him. So now he's the proximate, approximate, really close to it, the proximate cause of the fall <clears throat> or of evil in a sense. Now, the efficient cause is of, of the fall is Adam's free choice. He was not forced. He freely chose. The ultimate cause is God. The proximate cause is God. The efficient cause is Adam. Adam freely chose. No one forced him. He, therefore, is responsible for his own sin. Now, we can unpack these levels and things a little bit more, but... That's what goes. It's called ultimate, proximate, and efficient. You go to my website, you can look them up, and it goes through and it discusses these. And so God created everything is a yes and a no. He did create everything at the beginning, but evil is a contradiction to the character of God. And first, God is holy, 1 Peter 1.16. So he couldn't have created evil, but evil came into existence by the ordination and will of God. When we say ordination, we don't mean direct causation, but indirect. And we say will of God, there's what's called the decretive, prescriptive, and permissive. Decretive will of God. Let there be light. It's his decree. Prescriptive will, thou shalt not lie. Permissive will, he lets you lie. It's his will to let you lie. So I know I'm going over this quickly, but I teach on these things. I help people get the, oh, I, I get how they, they relate. And so... He's not the cause, he's not the creator of evil. He's not the creator of evil. Now, some people say, well, wait a minute. In Isaiah 45, 7, and I'll read the verse because I need to read it to you to show you because of what it says. Now, some versions in Isaiah 45, 7, it says this, like in the King James, it says, I, that's God, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. Some people will go to that verse and say, well, Matt, you're wrong. God created evil. That's what it says. Well, I go to the NASB, and I'll explain why, because it's a better translation than the King James. King James is great, but if you want a real translation, go to the NASB or the ESV and, uh, and study from those. But nevertheless, this is what it actually is saying, the one forming light and creating darkness. Notice the juxtaposition, light and dark, and causing well-being and creating calamity, NSB says, because the, the word for evil and calamity and disaster is the same word, ra'ah. So notice what's happening in the verse. He's contrasting light with darkness. So it says, forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and what's not well-being, the opposite. That's why they translate it as calamity in that verse and the NASB, I mean, the ESV says calamity also because of the juxtaposition. That's what's going on. It's not evil in the ontological sense. God can't do that. And that's another small road trip. Gotcha. Side trip you could take. 
Well, we're at about 50 minutes. Is there anything you'd like to add? You said that you have a talk tonight on Clubhouse, right? Can you tell yeah. people about uh, where they can listen? If uh, Yeah, you can go to, if you are interested, uh, let's see, clubdeck.com, I think it is. Club Deck. Is that it? That's not Clubhouse? It. Clubhouse. Yeah. Well, Clubhouse. Yeah, it's, it, it's Clubhouse. Is it? Because there's something called, there's a, yeah, that's what it is. Clubhouse.com. I'm new at this. And you can download uh, app, right. for the app for your phone. And there's also one for the computer. I use the computer one. I forgot. Let's see what it, what's it called. I got it right here. I'm opening it up. It's called Club Deck. At any rate. Club Deck. Gotcha. And so uh, you put in your phone number and you do stuff. And then it might be hard to find. Um, but you can just look, do a search for my name uh, at at 10 p.m. Eastern time is when I'll be on teaching in depth on the Trinity. It'll probably go one to three hours. And I'm going to go through some serious stuff, the immutability of God as it relates to transcendentals. I'm going to go through the one and the many problem. I'm going to go through the communicable, non-communicable attributes and the image of God. I'm going to go through all kinds of stuff that relates to the nature of, of the Trinity and how the Trinity is a necessary precondition for all intelligibility. And I'll be going through it slowly. I know a lot of people are just rubbing their foreheads going, what? But this is what I do. I teach this stuff. And um, that's what we do. Right. And your other teachings are on your website too, right? CARM.org. Yep. And you've done recent work as well on there. Yes, I've done recent stuff. And uh, in fact, I'm going to tell you the room for the clubhouse thing. I'll put a code in here. But yeah, I, there's, there's, I've written over 5,000 articles on CARM over 26 years. The site's been there. And uh, so I, I just do a great deal of work. And uh, let's see. Uh, see, there you go. Apologetics, Bible, Bible difficulties. So a lot of yep. the stuff that Matt's talked about, you can get more detailed inquiries can be done at this website, carm.org. That's right. That's right. And I'm trying to find this. supposed to be a, a note. I know I'm still learning how to do this, but there's a, a thing. Just, it, just look for my name, Matt Slick. Um, oh, the Doctor of the Trinity. There it is. Uh, yeah, the Doctrine of the Trinity with Matt Slick is the name. It's an upcoming event, and um, if people are interested, I can. If you're interested, email me at info@carm.org, and I'll see if I can find the URL and the stuff. I'll put it in there and give it to you. Okay, cool. Info I'll put at that info@carm.org as contact information, so people can check that out. And uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? Before we wrap this up, yeah, study God's word. Don't trust me. Study God's word, and believe it or not, the more you learn, the more you'll enjoy learning. And God's word is deep as well as simple, and it's wonderful. Study. Well, great. Thanks for sharing your time and all your knowledge. Sure. Again, the bio, the book that we talked about today specifically is titled "Christian Defense Manual," written by Matt Slick. S L I C K and published in 2020. So thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Amen. God bless. God bless you. All right. Stay okay. Stay